what's the craziest thing that the Lord has ever asked you to do? What's the craziest thing that the Lord has ever asked you to do? The thing that might be the hardest to do? Or that thing that everybody around you thought was so stupid to do? It was just absurd. They couldn't see the point. It's just ridiculous. I can't believe you did that. For example, that time when Jesus asked you to forgive that person? That person who had hurt you so badly? Everybody around you was like, why would you do that? They don't deserve that. That's crazy. What's the craziest thing that the Lord has ever asked you to do? In chapter 32, the Lord asked Jeremiah to do something that seemed absolutely absurd. Of course, by this time in his life, Jeremiah should be used to it. We've seen again and again how the Lord gave Jeremiah some really weird marching orders. Jeremiah was a walking symbol, right? He wasn't allowed to marry. That was a symbol. He wasn't allowed to go to parties. That was a symbol. He wasn't allowed to go to funerals. That was a symbol. He had to wear funny clothes. Remember that sash he had to wear around his waist? He had to bury very funny clothes, right? Remember how he had to bury that sash and go dig it back up and then bring it back and probably wear it around town some more? Rotted. Remember how he had to go to the potter's house and watch the shaping of that pot and then take that one pot and smash it? That was a symbol. Well, this story might just take the cake. In chapter 32, the Lord tells Jeremiah to buy a less than worthless piece of land. Verse 1 has the setup for the story. Look at verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Verse 1 sets the story in the year 587 B.C. This is the last several months before the exile. The 10th year of the last king of Judah, Zedekiah. The 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar over there in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar's army is no longer over there in Babylon. It is now surrounding Jerusalem and is holding Jerusalem siege. You know what siege warfare is, right? That's what's going on. It's just a matter of time until the walls fall and the soldiers come in. And the temple is torn down. And the city is overrun with Babylonians. And the people are carted off into exile. And Jeremiah will cry tears like he's never cried tears before. This is what Jeremiah has been predicting all along. It's finally here. We flashed forward to the end of the story, the part at the very end of 2 Kings. And Jeremiah, at this time, is in prison. The Babylonians are at the gate, and Jeremiah is confined. Did you see that? It says he's confined to the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now, we're going to read more about how that came about later on in the book, chapter 37. You can look ahead if you want to. But the king, this king, has Jeremiah under a kind of house arrest. He can move around, but he can't leave. 
Not that he could get very far. There's Babylonians at the edge of the town. Verses 3 through 5 explain why Jeremiah is in prison. Look at verse 3. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hands of the Babylonians, but will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. So you get this, this is an interaction between the king and the prophet. He's telling him why he's put him in prison. He's like, why do you talk like that? Get your name out of my mouth, he's saying. You keep saying, I'm going to lose and we're going to go into exile. That's why I'm putting you in prison, to stop your message. He obviously got the message. He just wasn't listening. He didn't believe it. As if Jeremiah could, has any other choice as a true prophet of God than to preach the true future. So you see the situation? Jeremiah is stuck in prison. The king hates him, or at least hates his message. The Babylonians are at the gate. Do you hear hope and future in these verses? I don't. It doesn't feel like they've got any hope. It doesn't seem like they have any future. Nothing good. Everything bad is coming true. Everything that Jeremiah had predicted and Zedekiah hated to hear is being fulfilled. If you read chapter 52, it's all going to happen. All of this, even the face-to-face meeting between Zedekiah and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, it happens, it comes to pass. These are the darkest days. And in these dark days, the Lord asks Jeremiah to buy the field. Look at verse 6. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. How many times has he said this for the last 40 years? The word of the Lord came to me saying, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth. Because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Now, stop there for just a second. Do you get the picture? The Lord tells Jeremiah in advance that his cousin Hanamel is coming to visit him in prison. Oh, good. A visitor in prison. But he's not coming to comfort him. He's not coming to console Jeremiah or to offer his support. He's coming to try to pry some money out of him. Whoa, what a great visitor. Hanamel has a a real estate deal in mind for Jeremiah. He wants Jeremiah to buy one of his fields in their hometown of Anathoth. You ever, ever have a cousin like that? You're not happy to see him come around? Cousin Hanamel has probably gotten himself into financial trouble. He's probably up to his ears in debt. He needs cash. And he's about to lose the family farm. And he says, hey, Cousin Jeremiah, have I got a deal for you. You know, you're the kinsman redeemer for our family. Do you remember that idea, kinsman redeemer from Leviticus chapter 25 or from the book of Ruth? If property was in danger, 
in ancient Israel, if it was in danger of leaving the family, the kinsman redeemer would have the right and duty to get the family out of debt, to buy it, to purchase it. But this time, there's no wonderful Ruth in the bargain. This deal is ruthless. That was a Blair Murray joke for you. But you see what's happened? Jeremiah is probably the oldest member of this family, and they're turning to him to bail them out of trouble by buying this farm. Now let me ask you, okay, put on your real estate mogul hat now. Should Jeremiah say yes to this deal? Humanly speaking now, remember a kinsman redeemer can refuse if the deal is too bad. There was a closer kinsman redeemer than Boaz in the Ruth deal, right? In in Ruth chapter 4. And he said, nope, I don't want to do that. So the kinsman redeemer can refuse. Should Jeremiah take this deal? It's a terrible deal. Really dumb. Think about it. Jeremiah's in prison. He can't use that field. He can't farm it. And he's not married, right? And he has no kids to pass the field on to the next generation. At that very moment, that field probably has Babylonians camped all over it. You want me to what? You want me to buy what? You want me to put my money down on what? That's crazy. That field is worth, it's less than worthless. So should Jeremiah buy that field? Yes, he should. Here's why. It's point number one of three. Buy the field because the Lord says so. Yeah. The Lord gets Jeremiah ready for greedy cousin Hanamel's visit because he didn't want Jeremiah to laugh in Hanamel's face. He wanted Jeremiah to take this deal. And even if he... If he didn't explain why, Jeremiah should take the deal just because the Lord said so. Look at verse 8. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I think he probably said it more like, I knew this was the, Lord, the word of the Lord. It's crazy. But it's from the Lord. So I better do it. And I did. Verse 9. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. One, two, 17 It's like burning Benjamins, right? Just putting it right into the fire. I signed and sealed the deal. Had it witnessed. And weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase. The sealed copy contained the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed, probably the reference copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, Mahasiah. In the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard, in their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. 
Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. Now, this is the first time, but not the last time, that we're told about Jeremiah's friend and administrative assistant, Baruch. His name means blessing, so he's, he's Mr. Blessing. Jeremiah does everything it takes to make this deal as legal and formal and public as he possibly can. All these witnesses, right? I mean, have you ever done a land deal? Right? There's got to be certain things are signed and certain things are notarized and certain things are sent to the courthouse so that it's, it shows up in the newspaper. It's public. I'm just trying to imagine how Hanamel felt. Because he must have thought there's almost no way Jeremiah's going to buy that land, Right? He's probably like, what, yes? Yes, okay, well, yeah, sign here. Let's get, this done. Let's get this to the courthouse. Everything is done according to Hoyle. The documents are, pl- are placed. Mr. Blessing places them somewhere more safe than the courthouse. Jeremiah makes the most ridiculous land deal there ever was. Jeremiah buys the field. Why? Just because the Lord said so. And that's enough, right? If the Lord tells you to forgive your enemy, that's all the reason you really need. If the Lord tells you to give your money to the poor, that's all the reason you really need. If the Lord tells you to do something that seems crazy, and you know that it's the Lord's will because he says so in his word, then you should do it, no matter what it is. That's all the reason you really need. But the Lord is even more gracious than that. He loves to provide more reasons to obey him. And Jeremiah knows at least part of why he wanted this one. It's because of God's plans. Plans for a hope and a future. Look at verse 15. Take these documents, put them in the clay jar so they'll last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Houses fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to shalom you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Oh, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought by Israelites in this land? Hmm. Maybe it's not the dumbest land deal there ever was. Maybe there's a future for that land. And Jeremiah going and buying it is saying that he believes in that future with his whole heart and his whole wallet. You know you believe it when it gets down to your wallet. Am I right? For so many years, they did not believe that Jeremiah, they did not believe Jeremiah when he said that judgment was coming. And now judgment has come. It's at the door. And now that judgment has come, Jeremiah is saying there's a future after the judgment. There's hope on the way that they cannot see. And he believes it with his whole heart and his whole wallet, so he obeys. He buys the field. And yet he still has to wonder, doesn't he? He still has to feel like, this is, just, this is crazy. What do you do when you feel like what God has asked you to do feels crazy? You pray, right? You take it to the Lord. 
And that's exactly what Jeremiah does. Look at verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Let's make that point number two. Buy the field. Why? Because the Lord is all-powerful. And when the sky was starless in the void of the night, he spoke into the darkness and created the light. Our God is an awesome God. Jeremiah starts his prayer by praising God for being the omnipotent creator of all. He says, ah, sovereign Lord. That ah could be alas. He's feeling it. He's feeling it in his heart. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This is a song Anita played at the beginning. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing is too difficult for Yahweh. The word hard there in verse 17 could be translated wonderful or extraordinary. Nothing is too out of the way for God to pull off. And that includes returning the exiles from their captivity, reversing the reversals that are happening to the nation, restoring the people of God to the promised land. Nothing is too hard for you. Do you need to hear that this morning? Nothing is too hard for the Lord, your Lord. Jeremiah has a list. He starts with Genesis and he works his way through the whole Old Testament showing just how powerful the Lord's outstretched arm is. Look at verse 18. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children after them. That's quoting Exodus 34. O great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. You reward everyone according to his conduct and as his deeds deserve. You're omniscient and you're just. You performed miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. We've been learning about that on Wednesday nights at prayer meeting as we've been going through the book of Exodus. Verse 22. You gave them this land. You had sworn to give their forefathers a land flowing with milk and honey. That's Numbers and Joshua. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do, so you brought all this disaster Upon them. That's the rest of the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? Judges through the Samuels and through the kings. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. He's talking to the Lord. He's praying. Lord, see. You see what's going on here? Just what you said. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians... Lord, this is what I just, I, just, I just don't understand. I'm not sure I grasp it. Or if I do, would you tell me that I've got it right? And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver 
and have the transaction witnessed. That's where we get our sermon title, right there from verse 25. By the field. You, O sovereign Lord, say to me, by the field. Do the crazy thing the Lord asks you to do because he is all-powerful. He has all the power it takes to do everything he said he would do. You could take it to the bank. He can make us. He can save us. He can rescue us. He can discipline us. He can restore us. Nothing is too difficult for him. Personally, I think that Jeremiah is struggling with doubt here. He knows this. He, he believes this. But it's hard to see. All he sees is prison and siege ramps at the walls of his beloved city. And he can see that it's going to get harder before it gets any better. He knows that there's death at the door and destruction and exile and pain. And it's completely deserved. But he also knows that the Lord is all-powerful, wonderfully powerful, and that he is also all-faithful and amazingly gracious. That's point number three and last this morning. By the field, because the Lord is all faithful. Because the, the Lord is faithful to all of his promises. What we've just been singing, great is thy faithfulness. And because he's amazingly gracious in what he promises, by the field. Look at how the Lord answers back to Jeremiah's prayer. Verse 26, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, I am the Lord. The God of all mankind is anything too hard for me. You're right, Jeremiah. I am Yahweh. I am the God who made and is over all humankind. And let me ask you a rhetorical question that you already know the answer to. Is anything too wonderful, too extraordinary, too difficult, too hard for me to do? No, sir, it is not. I can do anything that I say I will. And you can count on the fact that I will do anything I have said I will do. And everything I have said I will do. The Lord is faithful. Do you need to hear that this morning? I know I do. Nothing is too hard for him. No promise he has made is too difficult for him to pull off. And neither is any threat. That's what he starts with. His promise is to bring judgment. Look at verse 28. Therefore, nothing's too difficult. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the Babylonians. And to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking the city will come in and set it on fire. They'll burn it down along with the houses where the people provoke me to anger by burning incense on the roofs to Baal and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they've done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. They turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, 
They would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their abominable idols in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. The Lord has promised to bring judgment. We sang judgment and wrath he poured out on Sodom. Judgment and wrath he poured out on Jerusalem. He most assuredly is going to do that. And it's hard for him to do. It's his city. It's his beloved city. But it's not too hard for him to do to tear down his temple. It's not too hard for him to overrun his own capital city with Babylonians. It's not too hard for him to send his own people into exile. He promised to do it, and he's all faithful. But he also made other promises, which are even more wonderful. And they're the promises we've been learning about for the last month or so. The promises of the new covenant. Look at verse 36. You, Jeremiah, are rightly saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be handed over to the the king of Babylon, just like I promised. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. Does that language sound familiar? We've been hearing it now for the last month. It's covenant language. It's restoration language. It's grace language. It's the new covenant. The word translated there, but, in verse 36, is literally the word for therefore. There's some wild divine logic going on there. If God is faithful to bring his promised judgment, then how much more faithful will he therefore be to bring his promised salvation? He's going to bring them back. Even though they broke the covenant, he's going to make with them a new covenant. And this one is going to be different, better, unbreakable. Verse 39, they will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. He's saying new hearts, new creation, like what we talked about last week with Ron. New creation, singleness of heart and action, always fearing him, knowing him at the heart level. This is the power of the new covenant at work. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Isn't that wonderful? Do you see how how just mind-bending, heart-bursting, wonderful the new covenant is? It's unbreakable. He calls it an everlasting covenant. Everlasting, unbreakable. All those words that emphasize the everlastingness, like never stop, never turn away, never, 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 never. That's the hope and future of the new covenant. Make this personal. Put, put your name 
right there in that verse. Because the new covenant was inaugurated in Jesus' blood and you have put your faith in Jesus' blood, you have been grafted into the new covenant. So these promises are for you. I will never stop doing good to say your name. It's the Lord saying this over you. I will never stop doing good to If you belong to Jesus, you can put your name right there. If you don't belong to Jesus yet, then come to Jesus. You want to be in Christ. You want to be in the new covenant. He bought his people with his blood. And he'll never stop doing good to them. If you're outside of Christ, there'll be a day when he stops doing good to you. He's being good to you right now. But there'll be a day when he stops. But if you're inside of Christ, he will never stop doing good to you. The Lord is faithful all the time and forever. And he's amazingly gracious. His heart just overflows with love for his people. Did you see that in verse 41? He says, I will rejoice. That's the Lord. His heart, his heart pumps for this. His heart beats for this. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. What's the name of our sermon series right now? It's called Jeremiah called anybody? Uprooted, right? Uprooted. What's he say he's going to do? He's going to root them again. He's going to plant them. And imagine what it's going to be like when we are planted for all eternity in the soil of the new creation, which is the final fulfillment of all of these new covenant promises. The Lord is all faithful. He is faithful to bring about all of his promises of judgment and just as faithful to bring about all of his promises of salvation. Verse 42. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land. Of which you say, it is a desolate waste without men or animals, for it has been handed over to the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. You can count on that. You can take that to the bank. Buy the field. Fields will be bought again. So Jeremiah, go ahead and buy this one right now. Might seem totally crazy, your neighbors. Ignore them. I say, buy the field because nothing is too difficult for me and I will keep every one of my promises. Buy the field. What does that mean for you and me today? It doesn't necessarily mean anything about real estate, though in some of our cases it might. It means to do the seemingly crazy thing the Lord tells us to do in his word. For example, pray. Do you know how crazy prayer seems to the world? Okay, you go into a room and you talk to God. You invest your time just talking to this invisible person. You spend time doing that? 
You, you ask him to do things, to give you things, to help you with stuff. That's crazy. Unless God is real and he's all-powerful and all-faithful and amazingly gracious by the field. That, that, that means to give. You know how crazy generosity seems to the world? Why wouldn't you use your money on yourself and your friends and your, and your family? Why would you give your money to the work of missions to people far away from you? Why would you go to Malawi? Why would you give to the poor? Well, because the Lord says so. And because he's all-powerful and all-faithful and amazingly gracious. By the field. It means to forgive as the Lord forgave you. It means to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. That's crazy by the world's standards. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. That's dumb. That's brainless. Do it anyway. Buy the field. Resist the lure of pornography. Stick it out in a difficult marriage. Stand up against racism. Submit to the governing authorities. Share the gospel in a hostile culture. Do all the seemingly crazy things the Lord tells us to do in his word. Buy the field. Remember, when Jeremiah buys this field, he's in prison and the Babylonians are going to knock down the walls of his city. And nothing changes after he buys the field. He's still in prison. And the Babylonians are still going to knock down the walls of his city. Just because we buy the field now doesn't mean that everything is going to turn out just hunky-dory in the short run. But we Christians don't just think about the short run. We think about the long run and the longest run. Think about this. That deed that Jeremiah signed and sealed and put in that jar might still be buried in a field in Israel today. I'm not saying it is. I don't know. It certainly doesn't have to be. It was a symbol of hope. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were put in a jar a lot like that one that Mr. Blessing put this deed in. And they stayed intact for 2,000 years before being discovered in the 20th century. It's possible that one day this clay jar will also be discovered and the Lord will say to a resurrected Jeremiah, Oh yeah, that field is yours. And the prophet Jeremiah will get to live on a farm there in the new creation. Who knows? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So do the craziest things the Lord ever asks you to do. Buy the field.